Across America in the mid-1800s, a weird tradition was being founded. Carried along by the newly built railroad system, this migratory backbone gave America its infrastructure and laboured the farms to keep it fed. But as far as rural communities were concerned, these grubby drifters were layabouts, drunkards and radicals. Which is correct on all but one count. Hobos were not layabouts. They believed in earning their keep and standing on their own two feet. In fact, moving around to find work is what defines the life of a hobo. However, the image hobos have of themselves being hard workers is definitely not how they were viewed upon arrival in a town. It was more common they found themselves physically assaulted than welcomed with open arms. But this odd mix of union workers, free spirits and rebels were highly organised and will take us from the back end of Kentucky through Chicago and finally to New York to join every barber in Brooklyn as they put down their shears, take to the streets and demand better conditions. Welcome to Short Back and Sides. Welcome to Short Back and Sides with Phil the Barber, a podcast all about barber shops. It's Short Back and Sides. Short Back and Sides. Horace M. Sawyer was born in 1881 in Whitley, Kentucky. He spent the first 15 years of life in a one-room log cabin. In his autobiography, published by Maclean and Woodcock in 1922, he wrote, The good times of any childhood days always recalls back to their old playgrounds. However, this has never been the case with me, as my life was passed for 15 years with such rough and hard knocks that I have not had any desire to return to the old birthplace. End quote. Horace's childhood was spent working his father's pumpkin farm and stripping bark from logs cut in a nearby lumber mill. He was even nearly killed after napping at the bottom of a steep hill which was used by lumberjacks to roll trees to their camp. But hard work wasn't for Horace. At least, not that kind of hard work. He dreamed of work where precision and care mattered most, not backbreaking labour. But that's easier said than done in Whitley, Kentucky. Following the destruction caused by the American Civil War, many soldiers on both sides found they had no jobs or homes to return to. The ones who grew accustomed to the nomadic life of the military began travelling across the continent looking for work. This was enabled by the construction of the first transcontinental railroad, which was built between 1863 and 69. The railroad opened up new markets for mining, logging, agricultural and livestock enterprises, all of which required large numbers of seasonal workers. Many hobos even worked for the railways they moved around on. One posting for a job advertised in New York encouraged men to move to work for the railroad in Illinois, reading, quote, Wanted, 3,000 labourers, wages, $1.25 per day. Constant employment for two years or more given, good board can be obtained at $2 a week. This is a rare chance for persons to go west being sure of permanent employment in a healthy climate where land can be bought cheap and for fertility is not surpassed in any part of the union. End quote. So the employers wanted to paint a really beautiful picture for these people. 
but the hobo life was by no means glamorous and the work was terribly unsafe. Workers often suffered serious injuries, losing limbs was a regular occurrence and fatalities were not uncommon. The work was mostly done by people with no other options. And so, the number of migrant workers boomed in the 1870s when J. Cook & Co., the bank that had financed the building of the railroads, crashed, causing the first Great American Depression. During the American Civil War, J. Cook made a fortune selling hundreds of millions of dollars in Union government bonds. Following the war, Cook continued raising revenue to fund its investments by selling US treasuries. However, the bank became scared after the Black Friday gold panic of 1869, which, extremely briefly, was an attempt by two investors and a small-time speculator with connections to the White House to manipulate the markets and corner the gold market. And so trying to separate themselves from the government, Cook began looking for other means to raise funds. He had become infatuated with Duluth, Minnesota and dreamed of making it successful. And so J. Cook & Co. moved into the railway business. He began purchasing railways in an attempt to reach the Pacific from which he would ship goods back through the Great Lakes shipping system and eventually on to Europe. In 1870, the North Pacific Railroad made Cook & Company their sole bond agent, but Cook failed to market the bonds well to investors and overextended his bank, ending up owning 75% of the railway company. When the errors became public, investors quickly withdrew from the bank, and in 1873, they went belly up. Unsurprisingly, despite his failures, things were fine for J. Cook. His son-in-law re-established the firm, and by 1880, Cook had made his money back with a venture mining silver. He died peacefully in his bed in Pennsylvania in 1905. Things didn't work out as nice for everyone else, of course. The collapse of J. Cook & Co. sparked a chain reaction of bank closures, and even closed the New York Stock Exchange for 10 days. Unemployment peaked in 1878 at 8.25%. These desperate people, with little other to do, took up whatever tools they had and spread out, looking for a means to feed themselves. By the time Horace was born, the road was well worn by travellers who had taken to the hobo life. So at 15, when his mother died, it didn't take him long to sneak aboard a train and search for a way to get by. He describes his first night as a stowaway, saying, quote, I then went bumping the world in the face, leaving home. I went to Purcell and caught a freight train. This was the first one I'd ever ridden, and at the third station out of Purcell, the train slowed down. The brakeman came around to me and told me to jump. This was around 3.30 in the morning. End quote. So at the tender age of 15, we have this boy, all on his own, in Ardmore, Oklahoma. He bounced around several odd jobs, cleaning dishes in a hotel, hard labour for the new railroad construction which was building into Ardmore, and finally settled selling hot tamales, which is great to say by the way, hot tamales. Um, And after a whole year in the hot tamale business, he saved enough money to train in what he truly wanted to be, a barber. His next stop was Dallas, Texas to begin his training. Of this he wrote, I was a lad about 16. 
This is about the age all barbers start working at the trade and I thought I was man enough to live the barber's life and just knew it promised more money and pleasure than any trade I could take up for life. End quote. Horace completed a six week course in shaving and hair cutting and received a printed diploma but quickly found out it's not that easy to gain the skills of a master barber and so for the first few weeks out of college struggled to find any work saying quote, I went to Fort Worth presented my diploma to an old white haired barber he looked at me over his glasses and I looked at him and thought he was an old crank after he gave me the once over he said kid you have a long road to travel before you make a barber out of yourself and my advice to you is to stick that worthless piece of paper in the stove as it will lose you more jobs than it will get you. End quote. He tried using the diploma in several other shops and eventually found work. But his skills didn't yet meet the expected standard and was asked to leave at the end of the day. He still had a long way to go before perfecting his trade but Horace would rather jump on a train than walk a long road and decided he'd drift town to town and cut hair for whoever would let him. On leaving Fort Worth he returned to Ardmore. Here he found a job in a scab shop, so called as they were non-union and much cheaper. Obviously a lower standard of work as expected. They charged 10 cent for a shave and 15 cent for a haircut. After a week's work and a busy Saturday, he was only paid $4.15. When Horace confronted the owner about his short pay, the boss of the shop let him know, all a man gets out of the barber business is a lot of hard work and the smell of dirty breath. The job didn't last long, so he caught a train to Purcell and worked for an experienced barber who seemed happy to have him. However, he got itchy feet and left two weeks later, jumping a freight train and making his way to Lexington, which was known as a wild town and apparently would produce a street fight every 10 minutes before Prohibition. Here he met a wealthy farmer who was intent on making it big in the barber business. He struck lucky on this job and got six months work, but was forced to flee Lexington after an altercation with the local doctor, who prescribed him a swift kick in the arse after finding Horace returning from church with his daughter one night. He moved to Shawnee, Oklahoma, or as described by Horace, the jumping off place of the universe. Here he took the initiation of the Hobo Barber Union, which required a hazing ritual be undertaken, the details of which H.M. Sawyer has left uncharacteristically vague. The various hobo unions maintained a presence in most hub towns and would organise meetings and enrol new members, but more on them later. Anyway, not long after arriving in Shawnee, Horace moved on again to the unfortunately named Cement, Oklahoma, so called for the mill located in the town. Here Horace went into business for himself and was mostly frequented by mill workers. He ran the shop for three years and slowly learned his trade, mostly alone. And while his skills were definitely improving, he still had a lot to learn. He illustrates this with a lot of funny stories, such as being visited by a prune salesman who at the end of the shave requested, Kid, will you sell me that razor? How much do you want for it? Horace was confused, so replied, Two dollars and a half, but what do you want with it? The prune salesman looked him dead in the eye and said, I have a friend who makes this town and I don't want you to shave him with it. 
Another customer didn't want to take his razor, but had a more practical approach. As Hardest put it, quote, One day a stranger walked in the shop. The sand was blown at the rate of about 40 miles an hour, and I suppose he blew in with it. At any rate, I kept my eye on him, as it was an unusual thing for a stranger to stop in a small town barber shop. He hung up his hat, got in the chair and asked for a shave. When I got through, he paid me my price, 10 cents, and said to me, Kid, do you hone razors here? I replied, Yes, sir. What is your price for honing? 25 cents. He threw a two-bit piece on the stand and said, Hone that razor. I'll be back next week for a shave. End quote. I'd imagine at that point the voice of the old white-haired barber rung out in his head. Horace had spent over three years as a barber and still had a long road to go before he truly mastered his skills. But the harsh hobo life was beginning to catch up to him. As he put it himself, quote, I remained in cement for about three years. Three years of long hours and hard work. My health failed me. I gave up my business and moved to Oklahoma City and worked for a short while. From Oklahoma City to Shawnee and was there when statehood made its appearance and the state went dry. End quote. I haven't much got into this yet, but Horace was a major alcoholic. Like a lot of hobos, he mostly stuck to wine as it was strong and cheap, but usually wasn't too picky. Being present when Oklahoma went dry puts him in Shawnee on June 16, 1906, when the Oklahoma Enabling Act was signed. The act had many facets. It gave voting rights to residents of both First Nations and Oklahoman territories. The bill also ensured schools would be built and run secularly. But the law that concerned Horace was the state deciding to ban the sales of alcohol for the first 21 years of statehood. Much like cannabis nowadays, the state would establish liquor dispensaries for medicinal purposes, but otherwise it was completely illegal. Interestingly, the Women's Christian Temperance Union had been a big player in the push for prohibition. The WCTU had gotten involved when they suspected various brewers associations of funding anti-women suffrage campaigns, which was actually confirmed by a Senate investigation in 1919, but that's a whole other story that I don't want to bore you with. Horace couldn't get by in a dry state, so, thirsty as ever, he took to the tracks again. He went into business cutting hair for the locals of Moriarty, New Mexico, even trying his hand at farming beans here, but went broke when the crop failed. So he moved to Las Cruces and took a job working for a barber from Mexico. But Horace couldn't continue to work there. It was too hot for him, and instead he moved to the cooler climes of La Junta, Colorado. Colorado was one of the few states at the time in which barbers were required to have a license. At the application for his license, the examiner asked Horace if he really thought he could make it as a barber. Horace dryly replied that he'd only been at it for 12 years, but was hoping to make it far enough to make a living at it someday. With some difficulty, his license was passed. He was a pretty competent barber now and found work quickly in Leunta. After only a few days at the job, he got into an argument with the boss over his habit of lining empty bottles of Cedarbrook wine beside his station. Unsurprisingly, the boss let him go the next Saturday. At least these days when we get drunk on the job, we have the good graces to hide the bottle. Leunta was a dry town, but luckily for Horace, it was only a short trip to Pueblo, Colorado, where it was easy to get cold beer. 
He then moved to Los Animas for a short while before leaving Colorado entirely, settling in Hutchinson, Kansas. Horace found it to be a pleasant place, but called the locals home guards. This is hobo slang for someone who stays in their home and never even goes on holiday. Unfortunately, these were not the sorts of people who needed a barber, and Horace couldn't find any work in Hutchinson. Hobo slang is a very deep well. There are several dictionaries online curated meticulously, featuring many everyday words with hobo origins. Calling your shoes kicks is hobo slang, and the etymology of the word punk is linked to hobos as well. But the home guards of Hutchinson, however, quickly had their fill of their hobo. Try say that ten times fast. Whilst no doubt drunk, Horace was arrested for vagrancy, and with no other contacts, sent word to the secretary of the barber union, who offered little more help than ensuring he was well fed. He spent 28 days in prison. Upon release, it was business as usual. Like so many others, riding the rails was his life. Wherever the work took him, follicles to food. But around him, things were in motion. The Hobo Barber Union were not the only union Horace would be a member of. Hobos were coordinating in many areas past the workplace. The longest running and well-known union is Tourist Union 63. They were founded in the 1800s by a group of hobos who were fed up being removed from town as they had no work and no union papers. Tourist Union 63 got its name from the 63 hobos present the night the union was founded. 63 took the hobo life serious and are even responsible for writing a hobo code of ethics. 16 declarations for a hobo to live by, such as always strive to have work, don't cause hassle in towns, keep your camp tidy and when camping in large groups, always help out. The number one rule for hobos is as follows. Decide your own life. Don't let another person run or rule you. The membership steadily grew over the next 50 years, reaching a peak in the early 1900s before tapering. The union is still in operation today, uh, although with fairly depleted numbers. Uh, But they do hold an annual convention in Brit, Iowa, which I'm sure would be a great night out for anyone who does happen to visit Brit, Iowa. Um, But now I wanted to move on to another hobo union who played a big part in the barber story. The industrial workers of the world. Being a hobo wasn't required to be a member of the IWW or Wobblies as they call themselves. uh, Which is a very disputed term on where the origin of that actually comes from. And one of them is a little bit racist and it seems to be the most common so I'm not going to repeat it. But I'm sure you can google it. But at their peak, the bulk of the membership were migrant workers. There was almost no barrier to entry to be a wobbly. Any worker could join regardless of gender, race or religion, which was extremely rare at the time. Nowadays, companies gain social currency for hiring a broad and diverse cross-section of people. But at the time, equality and inclusivity could actually hurt an organisation. For example, Abraham Lincoln, now famed for leading a war against the southern slave states, appeared quite ambiguous on the topic of slavery when speaking publicly. Privately, Lincoln despised slavery, but ever the politician, he was slow to speak too openly about his views in an attempt to appeal to the large portion of blatant white supremacists in the US. 
even supposedly left-wing organisations such as the American Socialist Party found no contradiction in voicing their concerns about the oppression of white workers while simultaneously stifling attempts by freed black people to gain a modicum of security for their own community. Many unions at the time feared black labour in the same way we are told working class people nowadays view foreign labour, which is to say they were worried about their own jobs being replaced. But for the Wobblies, this fear was misplaced and instead their target was not fellow workers but the capitalists who owned the factories and businesses they ran. The only prism through which Wobblies saw the world was class. The union wouldn't establish itself until 1905, but the foundations for what eventually became the industrial workers of the world were laid at Coeur d'Alene. The contemporary picture of a strike is essentially one of a peaceful protest. Workers and their union will designate a specific time to down tools, management and unions will meet to discuss terms and come to a compromise which suits all involved. In the post-bellum United States, however, a strike was equivalent to a civil war. Violence was very common and business owners would try any means necessary to continue their operations. So in 1892, when miners in the northern Idaho town discovered their bosses had placed Pinkerton agents undercover in the mines, a strike was called, demanding a living wage of $3.50 a day for all miners, whether common labourer or skilled. The mine owners attempted to hire scabs by advertising outside the state for labour. They then hired goons from the Pinkertons who formed a militia to blockade the strike. The fourth ever governor of Idaho, Frank Streunenberg, eventually stepped in and instructed the 24th Infantry Regiment to break the strike. All the enlisted soldiers in the 24th were black and in his autobiography the IWW leader Big Bill Haywood said this was seen as an intentional ploy to further enforce racist divisions between the white working class and newly freed black people. But we'll return to Streunenberg and Big Bill shortly. Combined with the private Pinkerton militia, the 24th Infantry violently broke the strike and those who weren't killed landed in prison. The immediate result was the founding of the Western Federation of Miners. While in prison, the WFM began to discuss, develop their ideas and make plans for what they saw as the beginning of a class war. Their opening move in this war was the establishment of the IWW. A small group met in secrecy in Chicago and was comprised of what one of the founders, Eugene Debs, referred to as seasoned old unionists. In attendance were the secretaries of the American Labour, Mining, Railway and Engineers Unions. Several editors from various labour publications were also invited to that first meeting. The group were fed up with what they called organised scabbery, as the bosses would pit unions against each other. Other problems they saw were jurisdictional squabbling and autocratic leaders who used their power to rub shoulders with the wealthy, forgetting the needs of the union members. Their cause was simple. They intended to seize the means with which they fed their families for themselves. Their tactic is probably best defined in Benjamin Disraeli's 1845 novel Sybil, which is quoted regularly in IWW literature. He said, quote, Every engine was stopped. 
The plug was driven out of every boiler, every fire was extinguished, every man was turned out. The decree went forth that labour was to cease until the charter was the law of the land. The mine and the mill, the foundry and the loom shop were until that consummation to be idle. Nor was the mighty pause to be confined to these great enterprises. Every trade of every kind and description was to be stopped. End quote. For the Wobblies, all workers should be one. Regardless of vocation or trade, their union was established on the basis of class interest. For the ultimate tyranny was slavery, but the next worst thing was to be a slave for rent in the wage system. They saw profit as the theft of value which they had created. Like a slave, this trapped them at the level of mere subsistence. Their resistance to capitalism was born out of their experience as cogs in the machine. This is best described by the prolific IWW essayist Arthur J. Miller from his piece Working, No More Than a Wage Slave, in which Miller describes his experiences saying, quote, I am but a working stiff. No philosopher of pie in the sky, nor a self-appointed leader of anyone. My outrage comes from the reality of a working class life. I've been a line worker and have seen the torment of my sister and fellow workers from speed up production. I've been a farm worker and smelled the poisons on the plants. I have worked in the hard rock mining industry and felt the pain of the families of those lost in the deep holes. To me, the working class struggle is not a philosophical concept, but a battle for survival. End quote. In the year following the IWW's founding convention, almost 350 scaremongering articles were published admonishing the group, which had the unintended effect of advertising the union to workers all over America. On December 30th, 1905, our old friend, Governor Frank Streunenberg, was assassinated by an ex-member of the Western Federation of Miners, Harry Orchard. While in prison, Orchard was violently abused, placed on death row and had his meals restricted. Orchard was then offered his life, food and comfort if he would help in the conviction of IWW leaders. Under this extreme duress, Orchard gave a 64-page confession where he admitted to 17 murders and implicated the IWW leadership in many of those offences. Big Bill Haywood, Charles Moyer and George Pettibone were all subsequently arrested for the murder of the former governor as well. After a long trial, the men were found innocent, which further disrupted the attempts to finish the union. Big Bill Haywood essentially made his name in the trial and would spend the rest of his life giving speeches at strikes. Which brings us to Brooklyn. On the morning of May 5th, 1913, a small group of barbers began a strike demanding a reduction of their working day from 15 hours, 7 days a week, to 12 hours, 6 days a week. Although initially nobody took the strike too serious, the tone quickly changed as the strike progressed. On May 6th, violence erupted as strike breakers were met with a mob of up to 5,000 striking barbers who marched through Brooklyn throwing vegetables and stones at any barber shop still in operation. This was recorded in the New York Tribune the following morning reading, quote, 
The strike of the barbers, which had been taken as a joke in Brooklyn, took a serious turn last night when 15 arrests were made in Brownsville and East New York. Police charged a mob of several thousand strikers who marched six abreast through the streets and as a result one policeman is in hospital with a fracture of the skull and a badly lacerated face. End quote. As much as I searched, I can't find any information on how many striking barbers were injured or killed on that bloody night. But by May 8th, the Evening World ran the headline, The Whiskered Brooklyn Mourns reporting how, in some shops, the bosses had to shave three victims at a time. By the 15th, the IWW arrived to support the strikers. The narrative now shifted, and the violence was blamed on the IWW and their leadership. The Sun newspaper specifically named the wobbly leader Joseph James Etter in an article chronicling a number of attacks in which the windows of barber shops were smashed. On May 17th, Etter delivered a speech to almost 10,000 barbers at Union Square. Etter had come to prevalence a few years previous with his work in organising the waiter strike of 1912, so the barbers saw this as a very serious step forward for their strike. Around this time, the barbers in Manhattan also joined in. The workers, determined to not let themselves be characterised as mere rioters and thugs, established a strike headquarters at 142nd Avenue. For the rest of the month, the strike grew, and on Friday, May 30th, 1913, the Evening World ran a story under the headline, 2,300 boss barbers capitulate to IWW, Brooklyn strike over. The article goes on to say, quote, under the agreement, the working day for Brooklyn barbers is to begin at half past seven o'clock and to end at eight o'clock at night on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays. The day is to end at nine o'clock Wednesdays and ten o'clock Saturdays, unless a general holiday falls on a Saturday when they will end at four o'clock in the afternoon. End quote. All of this violence, all of this struggle, and the barbers were asking for hours that very few barbers nowadays would even consider. In fact, I don't know a single barber that would work those kind of hours. As time passed, the power of the IWW waned. Membership in radical unions dropped fairly drastically following McCarthyism and other Red Scare tactics in America. At the time, the demands of the IWW were looked at as utopian and unrealistic. But nowadays, those same demands are taken for granted, and so the pain they endured has essentially been forgotten. The hobo life has all but disappeared from the US, aside from that annual meetup in Brit, Iowa. The dusty pages written by Horace Sawyer are probably as close to that life as many of us will get. But the barber remains. And as long as barber shops endure, there'll always be a place for people regardless of their class or standing, to air utopian ideas. Ultimately, all of the freedoms we now enjoy, from democracy to the weekend, were paid for with the blood of brave people who were told they were too idealistic. Something to think about the next time you get your hair cut.
So there you have it. The first episode of Short Back and Sides. I've been looking into the history of barbering for a good few years now and through a, a little bit of nervousness and a lot of laziness it's taken basically three years to bring this first episode to you. When I first started looking into the history of barbershops I assumed it would be a case of reading a couple of books and using that research as a springboard make a whole episode out of it. But in reality, there's not really a lot of scholarship done on the topic. Overall, I think because it's such an everyday thing, something that people do, are happy with, and then continue on about their lives, they don't consider writing down about it. So pulling the thread to find a lot of these stories has taken a lot longer than I originally anticipated. My main hope for this podcast is that going forward, anyone who is interested in the topic of barbershops and their culture can bring ideas to the table and then future generations won't have to do a lot of this hard work. So if there is a topic that you'd like to see covered on Shortback and Sides, or if you think that I've got something wrong or that needs correcting, please don't hesitate to get in contact. The show has an Instagram which can be found on at SBAS podcast and I'd be happy to hear anyone's two cents. This trade means the world to me. I love doing it every day and obviously for the past year that's been a little bit more difficult with everything going on. So to anyone who's willing to listen to me ramble about it, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much for listening to the first podcast. And we'll be back next month with an episode on a shop very close to my heart. From my bedroom here in Dublin City, I'm Phil the Barber and this has been Short Back and Sides. <laughs>